Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Oh, well, welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us on this Memorial Weekend Monday. And just ahead this hour, a lira lurch, the Turkish currency falling to fresh all-time lows after President Erdogan's unprecedented re-election victory. The opposition calling it the most unfair vote in years. Erdogan set to appoint a new cabinet following so far unsuccessful attempts to reduce soaring inflation, the very latest on his plans from Istanbul just ahead. Plus, a missile barrage, Russia launching an unusual daytime attack against Kyiv Monday, that following another wave of missile strikes overnight, an attempt perhaps to weaken Ukraine's air defences ahead of that highly anticipated spring offensive. Well, we're live in Ukraine with the very latest. And deal dash. Congress set to vote Wednesday on the weekend's agreement to raise the debt ceiling and limit spending. President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy confident that they can pass this, but holdouts are likely on both sides with less than a week to go before a potential U.S. debt default. Potentially, even if all this does get resolved in time, does America still deserve its AAA credit rating following all the latest drama we'll be discussing? And in the meantime, Asian markets broadly higher Monday as investors there react positively to that framework and agreement. The Nikkei is still on fire, up more than 1%. That now takes it to a 33-year high. More cautious trading, however, across Europe. UK markets are closed for a bank holiday this Monday too. And of course, Wall Street is closed as well. So lighter trading expected. And it may be a holiday in the United States, but no day off for congressional leaders trying to sell their debt ceiling plan to the rank and file. The outcome of this week's vote still not certain, with lots of work ahead to win over opponents. And Arlette Sines reports now from Washington. Arlette, great to have you with us. Actually, no, she's not with us. We're going to watch this. With the nation barreling towards a default, President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy brokered an 11th hour deal to raise the nation's debt limit. We've reached a bipartisan budget agreement that we're ready to move to the full Congress. And I think it's a really important step forward, excuse me. <clears throat> and it takes uh, the threat of catastrophic default off the table. The 99-page bill, the result of weeks of tense negotiations. The agreement would raise the debt ceiling until 2025, after the presidential election, and would cap non-defense spending for fiscal year 2024 after certain adjustments. 
A White House official says that includes shifting $20 billion in IRS funding to other non-defense areas and rescinding $30 billion in unspent COVID relief funds. We know at any time when you sit and negotiate within two parties that you got to work with both sides of the aisle. So it's not 100% what everybody wants, but when you look, the country is going to be stronger. This is going to be transformational where our Congress is literally going to vote to spend less money this year than we spent last year. A major sticking point in the negotiations, tightening work requirements for government assistance. This deal raises the work requirements age for those receiving food stamps from 49 up through the age of 54, but makes exceptions for veterans, people experiencing homelessness, and former foster youth. White House officials say they expect the number of people subjected to food stamp work requirements will remain about the same. With the details ironed out, Biden and McCarthy now need to sell the deal to their respective parties. But the far liberal and conservative wings in Congress are already balking. The House Progressive Caucus frustrated with those expanded work requirements. Absolutely terrible policy. Does not reduce spending. Actually, by some estimates, creates a burden on administrative spending that is actually worse for, you know, for the overall cost of a program like that. The conservative House Freedom Caucus is also pushing back, saying the deal does not cut spending enough, with key members tweeting no Republican capitulation and hold the line. Those votes were never really in play. We get that, but overwhelmingly, Republicans in this conference are going to support the deal. How could they not? It is a fantastic deal. How many- How could they not? That was Alex Sainz reporting from Washington. And President Biden joining other world leaders in congratulating Turkey's Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Turkish president re-elected for an unprecedented third term after a highly contested runoff vote. He secured 52 percent of the vote, while his challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu received nearly 48 percent. And now the hard work really begins to tackle high inflation, boost jobs and growth and fulfill one of his major election promises, the return of one million Syrian refugees. To date, we have achieved the voluntary return of nearly 600,000 people to safe areas in Syrian territory. With the new resettlement project we are carrying out with Qatar, we will ensure the return of one million more people in a few years. Nader Bashir joins us from Istanbul. Nader, great to have you with us. The vote does suggest, despite his win, a very divided nation with the two camps having very different visions of where they want the country to head. How does he close that gap? Where does he begin? Well, look, Julia, it's a huge challenge for President Erdogan. Never Mm. before have we seen it come to a runoff in the presidential election. So President Erdogan certainly has some challenges ahead. We heard from the opposition leader, Kemal Kıçdaroğlu, speaking yesterday. He spoke about this and said that the results themselves really showed the polarization of the nation and the fact that there is a significant portion of the Turkish population that does want change, that does want a different future for Turkey after more than two decades of President Erdogan's Leadership, But we were at the AKP party headquarters uh, yesterday as that victory was announced. Hundreds of people gathering in support of President Erdogan. Their message was that they were voting for political stability. Take a look. Cheers of triumph, a declaration of victory. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan securing yet another term in office. After a closely fought runoff election on Sunday... Erdogan of the incumbent AK party came away with just over 52% of the vote, 
according to preliminary results. A comfortable win in the face of what many analysts believe to be his biggest political challenge in over two decades. Well, here outside the AK party's headquarters in Istanbul, you can see the crowds behind me. Thousands of President Erdogan's supporters have gathered to celebrate his election victory. And there is a real sense of jubilation, of triumph here. These are some of his most ardent supporters. We love him very much. He's our father, our grandfather, our everything. We voted for him because we trust him. We love him very much. We are always with him. In the opposition camp, Kamal Kilistaroglu, the leader of an alliance of opposition parties, fell by more than two million votes behind Erdogan. A bitter blow to a once optimistic coalition, hopeful for change in Turkey. In this election, the will of the people to change an authoritarian government became clear, despite all the pressures. The challenges ahead for the president are many, chief among them the economy. Turkey is in the depths of a severe cost of living crisis, with soaring inflation and a plummeting lira, caused in large part by Erdogan's own unorthodox monetary policies. Meanwhile, anger over the state's poor preparation and chaotic response to February's devastating earthquake is still raw. With more than 50,000 people killed, and millions more displaced by the disaster. On the global stage, Turkey's strongman has cemented the country's place as an influential power broker in the region, sometimes at the cost of straining relations with the West. But at home, his leadership has stoked fears over the future of democracy in Turkey. Over recent years, Erdogan has doubled down on quashing dissent, centralizing his grip on state power and ensuring his near-total influence over the country's media. Despite criticism, supporters maintain that this is a win for political stability. For opponents, however, Sunday's result has only deepened fears that the country could be heading ever closer towards authoritarian territory. Of course, this is, this is another five years in power for President Erdogan. There are some challenges ahead. He plans, when it comes to the economy, to follow through with his current uh, vision for the Turkish economy, keeping interest rates low despite the hyperinflation that we've seen, despite the severe cost of living crisis. And then, as you mentioned uh, earlier, Julia, those plans to relocate Syrian refugees back home as part of a joint partnership with the Qatari government. So there are some huge challenges ahead. And, of course, we can't forget Turkey's role on the international stage. We have, over the last year, seen Turkey positioning itself as a sort of mediator figure in the war in Ukraine. That is certainly going to continue for President Erdogan. We saw the successful uh, brokering of the Black Sea Grain Initiative deal by Turkey between uh, both Russia and Ukraine. And Turkey, uh, as we have learned, President, Putin, President Erdogan aiming to keep that relationship uh, with President Putin despite uh, the criticism, the concern that he has heard from his NATO and Western allies. Yeah, hugely important issues, both for ordinary Turkish people, to your point, and the geopolitics around the world, too. Nada, great to have you with us. Thank you, Nada Bashir, there. And more on Turkey and the economic implications of that election victory later in the show. Now to something different and the latest space launch, and this time it's China. 
The country's first ever civilian astronaut will be part of the three-member crew heading to China's space station. This will be the fifth manned mission there since 2021. Will Ripley joins us now. China's got pretty lofty goals for space, including, um, I was reading this morning, building a base one day on the moon and a manned moon mission by 2030. This is important, though, because before now it's been about the military and this is the first civilian. Absolutely, Julia. Yeah, the Shenzhou 16 will go down in history if everything goes as planned and it takes off just after 9.30 a.m. tomorrow local time. That's 9.30 p.m. on Monday Eastern time. Uh, but it will have a professor uh, at Beijing University uh, aer- uh, Aeronautics and, uh, and aeronautics and astronautics, the, the payload expert, who's actually going to be uh, the first civilian, as you mentioned. Previously, every single Chinese astronaut uh, has been a member of the People's Liberation Army. And so now the fact that they have the confidence to put uh, not just military trained experts, but they actually civilians who are going to be conducting scientific experiments, this is going to be a very important step forward in China's rapidly advancing space program. Remember, Julia, it was just over a decade ago, back in 2011, that the United States banned uh, NASA from participating with China's uh, space agency, citing concerns about China using technology that would be shared on the International Space Station uh, to advance its intercontinental ballistic missile program. Well, now here we are, and you have China very quickly kind of ticking off the list of accomplishments that uh, they hope to achieve. Of course, they're playing catch up by decades with the United States and with Russia. But the speed at which China's uh, manned space agency is really advancing here, the fact that they're now going to have a permanent presence in low uh, Earth uh, orbit, about 400 or so miles, uh, I should say 400 or so kilometers, about 250 miles above the Earth's surface. They're going to have three astronauts uh, at this space station rotating uh, every you know few months or so. This crew is going to be on uh, until November, and then they will be swapped out for a new crew. So certainly the United States watching this very closely, Russia watching this very closely uh, to see uh, how China's space advances uh, help them not only in the civilian sector, but also the military sector as well, Julia. What have they said to that point, Will, about the prospect for some kind of international cooperation? They're open to it. Uh, they haven't said to what extent they would they would cooperate with other countries, uh, but they have said that yes, they are open to the uh, to the idea in theory of working with other nations. And of course, China has been trying to expand its geopolitical influence in the diplomatic realm. Uh, it would make sense that now, if they have this space station, that they might reach out to countries that have not been participating necessarily in the International Space Station or even countries that are uh, with some sort of an offer to collaborate, to work together uh, to advance technology in various areas. And so uh, we have to watch to see what China's doing. But they certainly, uh, by, by this launch and by having now a civilian go into space, they're sending a very clear message that they are in space. They're in space to stay. And they're perhaps in space to win. They want to, they want to have people on the moon. And they want to eventually, of course, as the United States shares the goal as well, uh, you know, send missions to Mars. So this new space race that's evolving very quickly here, Julia, uh, the latest chapter of that uh, will happen with this launch of the Shenzhou 16 uh, tomorrow morning local time. Yes, very exciting. We should watch it closely. Um, It's too early for me to pronounce that sentence that you said at the beginning, aeronautics and astronomics. Oh, look, I did it. Well done. Um, Thank you. I was was like, it's such a tongue twister. I know. (laughs) That was a really brave decision and it was flawless execution. And I was smiling the whole uh, way through preparing. It was a a failure at this point. We'll try again. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) See you tomorrow and we'll discuss again. Well, Ripley, thank you. All right.
Okay, let's move on. Ukrainian air defenses shot down dozens of cruise missiles and drones targeting Kyiv this Monday. The capital has been targeted on 15 separate days this month alone. Sam Kiley joins us now from eastern Ukraine. Sam, we're continuing to see this pattern of bombardment 15 days this month alone. I just wondered whether some part of this is the desire to weaken Ukraine's air defenses ahead of what we keep talking about, the highly anticipated spring offensive. It's only trying to get them on the back foot. Yeah, in fact, uh, because the there were also attacks now in daylight, uh, mm. slightly unusually in this latest phase of the war, where you've seen uh, children running for cover, screaming, uh, there's burning debris been falling on vehicles uh, from missiles that have been shot down, in particular the Iskander missiles, which is a very potent Russian surface-to-surface -surface and air-to-surface missile that they used in the past, but we haven't seen so regularly used here, much less defended successfully against uh, in Kiev. But that's just what happened. So it's day daylight brings it to day 16 of this uh, campaign during May. As you rightly point out there, Julia, very much focused on Kiev, wearing down the air defences, trying to find a way through to the command and control structures of the capital, but now clearly also trying to work on the minds and the bodies effectively of Ukrainian civilians with this uh, outright attack against uh, civilian targets uh, in a civilian city uh, during the day. So a uh, very aggressive campaign, a higher number than we've seen for a long time, over 70 missiles fired out uh, by Russia overnight, but both cruise missiles and drones, uh, all of them, or nearly all of them, are shot down by this, the air, air defences. But again, this is all about a question of supply. The Every day that Ukraine uses its air defences, which come largely from overseas, from foreign nations, they need resupply, and the Russians know that. So it's a very a deliberate attempt to wear them down ahead of this, as you rightly point out, anticipated summer offensive, Julia. Yeah. Can I ask about uh, neighbouring Belarus as well? Just days after President Lukashenko said that Russia was transferring tactical nuclear weapons to Minsk, we have President Lukashenko offering nuclear weapons to nations that are willing to join the union state of, of Russia and Belarus. I mean, we could talk more broadly, but have we seen any weapon transfers? What do we know on this? So these are not weapons transfers as such, not into the hands of the Belarusians, but allowing uh, Russian, Russia to station tactical nuclear weapons on Belarusian soil. That is part of the uh, Belarusian agreement with the Kremlin. What Lukashenko is adding to here, rather bizarrely, is saying that anybody who wants to join Russia and Belarus's defence pact effectively can get some nuclear weapons. Now, the, Re the Belarusians don't have any. Uh, they have nothing uh, in that regard to give anybody. Uh, so were this to have come from President Putin, it would be uh, deeply alarming for the international community because he'd be trying to expand uh, the structures of the effectively trying to return perhaps to some Soviet era level of nuclear proliferation. But the fact of the matter is that uh, Belarus can offer anybody any number of nuclear weapons because its pockets uh, are empty of nuclear weapons. I think probably what it is indicating, though, intended to do is rattle the West and get them thinking more about the dangers 
of nuclear proliferation. For example, if those tactical nukes coming from Russia were to take up permanent residence in Belarus, would that then presage the movement back into that territory of intercontinental ballistic missiles or much more potent nuclear weapons? So I think really it should be seen in that context, Julian. Yeah, if you're hypothetically promising to give someone else's weaponry away, though, in this case, Russia, uh, I wonder if you checked with the Kremlin first. Um, hmm. Sam, thank you for that. Sam Kali there joining us from eastern Ukraine. OK, straight ahead. A debt deal to avoid a US default looking more likely. But is this how a triple A rated country should behave? We'll discuss with rating agency Morningstar and the implications after the break. And later, a win, as we've discussed, for President Erdogan in Turkey. Will it be a win for the economy? Investors so far begging to differ. We'll discuss. Welcome back to First Move. Debt ceiling drama avoided? Not quite yet. The White House and senior Republicans agreed to limit spending and raise the debt ceiling this weekend. But of course, now U.S. lawmakers have to vote on it. And that's set to happen on Wednesday. But speaking Sunday, President Biden had some tough love for the critics. The agreement prevents the worst possible crisis and default for the first time in our nation's history. An economic recession Retirement accounts devastated, millions of jobs lost. Mr. President, what do you say to members of your own party who say you've made too many concessions in this deal? They'll find I didn't. Yes, compromise. That's what it takes. In the last hour, White House Communications Director Ben LaBolt defended the budget agreement on CNN this morning. Here's what he told my colleague Erica Hill. But we think we've landed in a reasonable place that recognizes that there's a Democratic White House and a Republican House, and ultimately some bipartisan compromise is needed for the legislation uh, to pass at the end of the day. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen estimates the X date, when the Treasury has to start prioritizing what payments it makes to whom, is now June the 5th. So the time frame is tight. Next week, the Treasury Department is scheduled to make an estimated $92 billion worth of payments and transfers. They say they need a deal effectively to meet all of those spending commitments. The U.S. government has never defaulted on its debt, but that didn't stop rating agencies, including Morningstar, placing the U.S.'s AAA credit rating under review. Joining us now is Michael Haidt. He's the Senior Vice President of Global Sovereign Ratings at Morningstar. Michael, great to have you on the show. We appreciate you being awake for us this morning on a holiday weekend. How confident Absolutely. are you that this deal will be agreed? Well, um, I don't have the odds for you. We're clearly interested in how things play out this week. But if you look at um, the leadership of both parties, they need 218 votes uh, to, to pass this bill in the lower in the House. Uh, the Freedom Caucus on the right accounts for roughly 40 votes. We think probably most of them will vote against this bill. On the left, you have the Progressives. That's about a uh, hundred uh, members. Uh, some of them might also vote against this bill. But I think if uh, the moderates in both parties coalesce around their leadership, they should have the votes to pass this. But that said, uh, this is, you know, we'll have to see how things play out over the next uh, few days. 
Yeah, so that's not an absolutely confident. Um, and obviously, time's running out, as I pointed out in the introduction. Um, just talk right. to me, even if it takes a bit of time and a bit of negotiation, if we go past that X date, which the Treasury is now saying is, is June the 5th, is your expectation that above everything else, the US Treasury prioritises the repayments of debt and interest payments on that debt above anything else? And is that the right decision? Right. So um, if we get past the X date, what we'll be looking at is exactly that. How does Treasury operate post X date? Um, our, our expectation, uh, not with a high degree of confidence, but our expectation is that Treasury would prioritize interest payments and roll over debt as it matures in order to avoid a default. Um, and that would mean that non-interest spending would need to be delayed. The implications of that uh, could be uh, quite negative for the economy. I think we could see um, a negative shock through three channels. One is the confidence channel, as consumer sentiment would probably deteriorate, equity markets would decline. We'd see households and firms pull back, given that level of uncertainty. Uh, you would see a shock through the credit markets as interest rates rise and credit becomes less available. And then lastly, you would have this fiscal drag which might be modest at first as um, some checks are delayed. But once you really saw Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, those type of spending items being delayed, uh, the drag could be quite significant. And so if we get to that scenario where, where Treasury is prioritizing debt payments, um, we think um, you could see economic activity really take a hit in June and only get worse uh, through the third quarter. Yeah, they're flirting with real danger. Do you expect volatility in financial markets around that X day anyway? Even if a deal's in the works, there's just a sort of shuffle going on to, to get the centrists together um, in Congress to, to agree to this. Could we still see some volatility? Yeah. There, there definitely could be volatility this week, as I think there's going to be a lot of theater uh, in Washington about how members are going to vote. Um, like I said, I, I, I think they have the votes, but but it's not at all certain. And, and also, as you mentioned, they need to do this quickly. So there's not a lot of time. The X date is uh, June 5th or the, the week of June 5th. So this needs to happen quite quickly. The sad fact is, Michael, and I look at this situation, and we have been here before, that if you look at the polarization in politics in, in Washington and in other countries, but specifically Washington, um, these standoffs overspending and, and budgetary commitments will continue, particularly as the laws stand. Does a nation like the United States deserve, justify having a AAA rating at this stage when they put investors, citizens, but primarily investors in this case, um, through the uncertainty that we've seen once again over the last month? Yeah, you know, I think the U.S. has exceptional credit strengths. Um, it, it has an enormous economy. It's highly productive, highly innovative. Um, it has the world's reserve currency. It has very strong governing institutions. And so these factors really support the U.S. capacity to pay. Uh, I don't think that there's any concern on our part about the U.S. capacity to pay. But this debt ceiling issue does raise questions about the willingness. And um, we think that it's a very low likelihood. There's a lot of drama about around the debt ceilings, but each individual episode is a very, very low likelihood, we think, of an actual default. However, 
if you saw that go again and again and again, at some point, you have to wonder whether the cumulative risk is no longer uh, consistent with a AAA. So we are looking at that. That is something that we worry about with regards to um, polarization in, in, in the U.S. Um, so it, it is certainly something we're, we're going to take into account going forward. Yeah, because it almost makes it worse. Having the capacity to pay uh, your debts and the interest on your debts, but lacking the willingness to use your word to pay, for me, in some ways, is worse. Um, on the brighter side, assuming this all gets agreed, when do you decide to take them off rating watch negative? So uh, under reviews are typically 90 days. They're typically resolved within that time frame. In this case, I suspect it would be much a much shorter period. We put it under review just last Thursday. We, what we want to see is the debt ceiling either lifted or suspended um, by the X date. And, and then I think um, shortly thereafter, we could, we could t- make a decision on how to, how to go forward. Yeah, Michael, it's a sort of whole load of nothing, just politicking for, for no real reason and a lot of um, damage potentially in the process. Great to have you with us, sir. Get back to your holiday weekend. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Michael Hyde there. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, as Turkey's President Erdogan celebrates his election win, the lira sinks to new lows on fears for the future. What comes next? That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The Turkish lira hitting a fresh record low on Monday after President Recep Erdogan secured a victory in Sunday's presidential election runoff. The lira has slumped around 7% since the start of this year, but it's also lost more than 90% of its value against the US dollar over the past decade. The election cycle resulted in a surge of spending and promises to the Turkish people, despite the nation already facing a record high budget deficit and rampant inflation. On the latter, the president has said he will continue the unorthodox policies to help address it, such as cutting interest rates rather than raising them. Salva Dimirap is the professor of economics at Koch University in Istanbul and joins us now. Professor, great to have you on the show with us. You said that you saw this election runoff as a last exit for the country and that exit has now been missed. Describe what you mean. Sure. Uh, The economic policies proposed by the government and the opposition were radically different from each other with the opposition promising a return to orthodox policies and abandoning the current low interest rate environment. And unfortunately, there is no such world where you can cut interest rates and grow indefinitely because at some point, the inflationary pressures and the risk premium are going to tighten financial markets and slow down the economy. And Turkey has been suffering consequences for quite some time now. But instead of reassessing its policies and adopting a more orthodox approach, the government chose to continue with low interest rates and suppress the side effects by channeling more funds into the economy and unfortunately going deeper into untested grounds of trouble. That's why I thought the runoff would be the last exit uh, before we enter this uncharted territory. But last night's results show that we missed the exit And at this point, I see an inevitable slowdown in the Turkish economy. To me, the question is whether it's going to be a more controlled slowdown or a sudden stop. 
We'll explore that in a second, but it's it's interesting. We're just showing videos of, of people celebrating and, and listening to the president speaking. Um, obviously, there are many reasons why people choose to vote, but, but why do you think the majority of, of voters did decide to elect him despite some of the economic challenges that they're facing? C- can an argument be made that some of his policies perhaps cushioned um, his base supporters or that they even don't really understand the consequences of, of the policies that, that the president has chosen to promote up to now. Absolutely. I think that's pretty much it. And I should note that we have been living beyond our means in an effort to stimulate growth for quite some time now. And the election results reflect that now that the party is over, whoever ordered and consumed this feast is going to pick up the bill. But Erdogan's victory reflects that despite economic struggles that we have diagnosed as economists, his base, or at least 52% of the population, were relatively more insulated from the economic deterioration. And more importantly, people are ignorant about the postponed costs of the pre-election spending. And what we have seen so far in terms of the costs of low interest rate policies, I'm afraid is just the tip of the iceberg. You're as a nation already in uncharted economic territory in many ways, because um, the nation's running a twin deficit, as we call it, a, a budget deficit, which means that you're spending more than you're raising in things like tax receipts, but also um, a current account deficit, which means that you're effectively buying money or sending more money abroad in terms of services and goods than, than is coming in the other way. Um, these things aren't sustainable forever, Salva. Can you give us a sense of timing to your earlier point about a controlled slowdown or a less controlled slowdown? How long, how much further can these policies last? Unfortunately, that's the million dollar question. I mean, as economists, we can tell the direction and we can highlight that it's not sustainable. And we have been saying this for quite some time now, but we can also see that there is just very little room for the government to maneuver and the current policies which rely on cutting interest rates and then offsetting the pressures on the Turkish lira depreciation by selling central banks reserves is coming to an end because last week's numbers on central banks reserves show that net reserves of Turkish central bank are now in a negative region like minus 0.3 billion dollars which essentially means central bank does not have its own money to spend anymore, which suggests me that the, cent- uh, the government should either consider rate hikes and pivot, despite President Erdogan's promises of a low interest rate policy moving forward. Or if they are not going to do that, then we will see more strict capital controls. But I'm afraid that would have grave consequences for an open economy like Turkey. And what about the banking sector? Because as we've seen in the United States in particular, when the banks themselves are, are buying government debt, but you keep interest rates artificially low, that the price of them is high. If you then let interest rates rise or you raise interest rates, the value of them drop and, and gaps are created. It, it, how is the banking sector in Turkey at this moment? And can that bear the brunt of, of rising interest rates if indeed a situation calls for it? So bank balance sheets have been used as a monetary policy instrument uh, in the last one and a half years because when the government cut the policy rate, 
and yet inflationary pressures and the risk premium went up, market interest rates started increasing. And in order to repress market interest rates, banks were required to buy government bonds in an effort to lower market interest rates. So Turkish banks now are holding, uh, sitting on a lot of uh, government bonds. And because they are uh, required to buy these bonds, uh, the interest rates are low and the price is high. But once an inevitable rate hike uh, happens, and I think that is the more likely scenario as opposed to capital controls, then the prices of these bonds that the banks are holding are going to go down, which is going to mean capital losses for the banking sector. I should note, however, that I don't foresee a problem like the way we see in the United States, because as a percentage of total bank balance sheets, those government bonds are a relatively small fraction. Yeah, very important point. Um, to make and thank you for making it because that was going to be my um, my next question. Um, what's your advice to people, Salva, to, to ordinary citizens, just given the um, the challenges that you're outlining, the potential risks and, and what might inadvertently happen if necessary to, to stabilize the currency and the economics of the country? How should individuals behave? How should they save if they can? Well, Turkey has had chronic inflation for decades. Therefore, the households are quite resilient and they kind of know how to deal with inflation. I mean, it's just you learn it by doing. And people, for example, in an environment where market rates turn negative in real terms, people go ahead and buy dollars or gold. So in that sense, financial literacy is uh, quite high. Uh, nevertheless, uh, my advice would not be for the households. My advice would be for policymakers because they are the ones who are going to shape the relative gains or losses for the country. And my advice would be to reevaluate uh, the consequences of policies because we started this journey about a year and a half ago in September 2021, where President Erdogan noted that by cutting interest rates, we would be able to lower inflation. And also, we would be able to promote growth. So it was a win-win. There was hardly any trade-off. But what happened was that not only that after an initial uh, acceleration of growth, we see an inevitable slowdown because increase in inflation led to a decline in purchasing power. So we see a slowdown in consumption. But also, what we observe is that inflation rates did not go down consistent with the orthodox policies. So the Unorthodox journey ended up fulfilling the predictions of the orthodox economics where rate cuts do not really lower inflation, but trigger inflation. So I would urge our policymakers to put these consequences of the policies together and reassess uh, the policies moving forward, because Turkey is really at a critical point right now. And I would hate to see an open economy adopting a more closed economy, uh, capital control, it would not only hurt Turkish economy, but it would affect the rest of the world through supply chains. Because as you know, after the pandemic, we have seen how globalized and how connected the entire world is. If Turkey cannot import intermediate goods because of limited foreign currency, then we cannot produce, let's say, those appliance parts to ship to Germany, and Germany cannot produce the refrigerators, and it would affect the entire global production network. 
Yeah, when you're a smaller open economy and you have a weaker exchange rate, that can benefit your exporters and cushion you for a certain period of time, but it doesn't last forever. Um, Professor Dimarup, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much Thank for you. your insights today. Okay, stay with CNN. Coming up, Uganda imposing one of the harshest anti-gay laws in the world, and that could even result in the death penalty. The latest, next. And returning to Ukraine now, explosions have been reported around the capital, Kyiv, for the second day in a row. It comes as the West awaits the nation's counter-offensive plans. CNN's Sam Kiley travelled to visit some of Ukraine's new recruits, preparing for the next stage of the battle. These are new recruits training. They could be on the front line in a couple of weeks. Got a whole load of blue on blue. In training, mistakes are harmless. And what happened to you? How long have you been doing this training? What do you think about the coming offensive? Do you want to get involved? You're not worried? These are young men. They've been having quite a lot of fun running around in the woods, and sometimes things get quite funny. But ultimately, this business is deadly serious. These recruits could be weeks away from combat. Pretend war turning to this, where death is all too real. Wounded veteran Colonel Alexander Piskun runs the training. That experience is hard one. Alexander came face to face with the Russian who shot him in Bakhmut last week. What would you say to young volunteers or conscripts joining now? The hospitals got plans for dealing with Ukraine's offensive, which is expected this summer. Colonel Pushkin knows that this will not be his last memorial service. This military cemetery has space to grow. Soldiers are confronted with grim truth here, that many young men are forever entombed in this parade of graves. Sam Kiley, CNN in Krivuri. 
Okay, still to come here on First Move. You may have seen this over the weekend. Venice menace, new watery woes for the perennially challenged Italian city. This mysterious green, far from routine. That story just ahead. Welcome back to First Move. Venice's famous Grand Canal has been mysteriously transformed into the Green Canal. An unsettling fluorescent green, to be exact, and officials apparently still have no idea how or why. Bobby Nadeau is in Rome for us. Bobby, when I first saw this, I thought maybe algae, and then I thought maybe activists. Do we have any sense of what the substance is yet? Well, you know, they're getting closer and closer. They're doing a lot of analysis. The first thing they did was to try to determine if it's toxic or not. They said it's not, not dangerous to the flora and the fauna, certainly not more than anything else in the Venice Lagoon. And now they're coming around to the idea that it's likely a substance, a tracing substance that's used in underwater building and, and, and shoring up the structures in Venice. You're supposed to use about a teaspoon of that at a time in order to see if there's water flow where there shouldn't be water flow. And so they're under the impression now, and they're still doing lots of tests, of course, it's not quick to, to do these tests thoroughly, that somehow a large amount of this substance got dumped into the lagoon on uh, or into the canal, Grand Canal near the Rialto Bridge on Sunday morning. And it's going to take a long time, too, for it to sort of dissipate. So it's not it's here for a little bit, a while to stay, Julia. Reef, if you would normally use a teaspoon of it, how much did it take to turn the canal green like that? I mean, that's perhaps a way to find that person or the people that did this is see who's been buying up all that substance. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that was everyone was really quick to say that this must have been an act of climate activism. We've seen so many of these attacks uh, here in Rome and across the country in the last couple of months. But all of the climate activist groups sort of thought, no, we didn't do it. But, you know, interesting idea because it's not toxic to turn the, the, the canal green. So say the experts. And so it's just a matter of time now for it to dissipate and flow away because trying to get rid of it would actually have to you'd have to introduce something fairly harsh into the canal. And they don't want to do that. Julia. Yeah, got to let it dissipate to your point. I think charcoal was put in the Trevi Fountain last weekend too. So, hmm, more and more mysterious. Barbie, great to have you with us. Uh, if we get any further information on that, we will clearly share it. Thank you. Now from fluorescent green to queen. Reports say talks are underway to sell the beloved rock band's entire musical catalogue for at least $1 billion. That's twice as much as the mammoth deal for Bruce Springsteen's back catalogue struck a few years ago. A source telling CNN that Universal Music Group is in discussions to buy all of Queen's decade-spanning output from Disney. Queen's surviving members may soon be singing We Are the Champions as another music industry record bites the dust. And finally... More than a century after the Titanic sank, there are still new treasures being discovered at the wreckage site. A UK-based mapping firm captured these images of gold jewellery found in a digital scan, featuring the tooth of a prehistoric shark called a megalodon. Company officials say they are trying to identify the owner from pictures of the 2,200 passengers who were on board when the ship sank back in 1912. Footage of passengers, especially their faces and clothing, will be analysed as part 
of the project. It's actually very difficult to uh, read and look at the images and I was transfixed there. So my apologies for slowing down dramatically. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.